This is the Life of Jesus podcast with Ben Greenbaum and Mark L. Susser. For a full year, we're looking at the life, teachings, and works of Jesus from the four Gospels put together in one chronological flow. Ben, we're at week 35, I think it is, of this long journey of 52 weeks that we've been on. And we're moving toward the time when Jesus is going to be arrested. And here, so we're really kind of toward the end of his earthly ministry as we're examining what he does and what he says. And we're in a little section of scripture here in John chapter 8, where the identity of Jesus, who he is, why he came, what he was about, is thrown into question. And much of this is really about sin and his encounter with sin and what sin means. Now, sin is a topic that we don't like to talk about too much in society. It feels perhaps judgmental. Sin is even a topic sometimes that is avoided by the church, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as a means of, I think, the wanting to, to welcome all, to uh, see people comfortable within the body of Christ, there is an inclination among some to avoid the topic of sin. Jesus didn't avoid it. He stepped right into it. And here we're in John chapter 8, verses 1 to 11, and it's the story of Jesus and this woman who was caught in the act of adultery and the encounter that she had with the community who was around her and what Jesus did as he intervened in her life. This passage is uh, one of those that's maybe in question a little bit. It's not in every manuscript, and, and sometimes in, in uh, different translations, it's either not there or it's kind of put in a different italics to, to show that it's not in every manuscript. Nonetheless, I, I take it to be an actual episode that took place in the life of Jesus, and we will treat it as such today, if that sounds okay to you. It's in John chapter 8, verse 1. It says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. So early in the morning, people are already finding Jesus, and he's sitting and he's doing teaching. I would, I'd still love to have those teachings. I wish we had all those things that he said. Verse 3, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, those religious leaders who were always at odds with Jesus, they brought in a woman caught in adultery. You know, it's always been striking to me. It's been talked about a lot. Like, where was the guy? If she was caught in adultery, why'd they bring her and not the guy? So they did. We don't know if she was the married person or if he was the married person or if they were both married to someone else or not. But this was a heinous crime in that day. In fact, it was punishable by death according to Jewish law. So it says they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. 
Seems a little unfair to this woman. I mean, certainly she had done something which was wrong, but she was simply being used as bait in order to have a basis to arrest Jesus, which we knew they wanted to do and to do away with with Jesus uh, along the way. And I wonder sometimes if if people sometimes, even though they have done something very wrong, if they're sort of a victim of culture wars, this is what's sort of going on there, and we'll still see that today played out. You know, at the end of the day, they're just objectifying her. They're using her as a tool, as a means to, to try to trap Jesus um, and to define uh, the law of Moses. It says, but Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. You know, I've heard a lot of people give sermons or speculate on what he wrote, and whether he, he was writing words or or drawing pictures or what, or even doodling or what he or waste or spending time so they could think or so for dramatic effect. I don't know what he was writing there in the ground with his finger, but I'm imagining that it made other people think. Either the the pause did it, or maybe he was looking around the crowd. Here's what I've wondered: looking around the crowd of the people who had picked up a stone to stone her because she'd committed this crime according to Jewish law. And if he beginning to look around the crowd and write down in one word the sins of the people who were in the circle, who knows, right, what, what was happening here. It says, verse 7, when they kept on questioning him, so they were, as he was writing, they were badgering him with, is it right for this woman? What do you say? As they kept on questioning him, he straightened up. Now he's standing up and he said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground, continuing whatever he was writing before or doing before perhaps. So there's a, it's an interesting exchange here that goes on between Jesus and these people, and he's inviting them to throw a stone at her. He's, he's, go ahead and do it if you're without sin. And of course, they could have. They, they could have thrown the stone, and if one did, probably all would have, I would guess. They, they could have thrown the stone and claimed to be without sin, but it was a, it was a kind of question which really made them think. You know, years and years ago when I was in seminary, uh, there was a, a friend of my wife, and this man worked as a, as a nurse at the hospital where she worked, and he got a hold of me, and he said, you're in seminary, right? I said, yeah. He says, where's that verse? Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone. And so uh, I had to find it <laughs> back in the day where it was. And I, I gave it to him. And I said, well, why do you want to use it? And he said, well, because the, the state of North Carolina is wanting to execute somebody and I'm going out for a protest. And he wanted to use this as a verse to say that the state of North Carolina should not do that activity. And they, if they are sinful, be the first one to throw a stone or throw the switch or, or whatever it was. I don't remember. It, this verse gets used in a lot of ways. In a, in a lot of settings, uh, 
what what do you see is like the use of this verse and and the appropriate use, maybe the inappropriate use of this verse, and how how we interpret it today as followers of Jesus. Yeah, I think if if you look at this verse in the context of Jesus's words in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew seven, where he talks about you know the um, when confronted by the sin of a brother or sister. He makes the point that we need to go and remove the plank from our own eye. And so when confronted by the sin of another, our, our, first, our, our first response, in fact, this should never be our response, but our response should not be, you know, woe to you, evil, wretched sinner. Mm-hmm. When confronted by the sin of another, our first response should be one of humility, recognizing our own sin where the sin of another serves ultimately as a window into our own hearts, which causes us to consider our own lives before God, to consider our own sin that's existent within our hearts or within the actions uh, of our lives, that we ourselves would go and lay that sin before the throne of God's grace uh, and mercy, um, to confess that, to repent uh, of it, um, not to engage the sin of another with a, a disposition of self-righteousness, but to engage the sin of another with a, a disposition of humility that, again, leads us to repentance, leads us to confession, and then out of that, going to uh, engage a, a brother or sister who is um, caught uh, in sin, um, that while we go to them to uh, for the sake of accountability— and because we long for, the, for them to uh, be uh, in intimate fellowship with God, we go to them and we hold them accountable. But as we hold them accountable, we say, you know, as, I, as, I've, as I've seen uh, this, this sin play out in your, your own life, I've been confronted with the sin in my life. And having confessed that sin before God, you know, I'm coming to you with a, a spirit of humility, recognizing that, you know, if not for the grace of God, the, the two of us would be separated uh, from, from the Lord. And so, uh, and so in that, again, you know, the, the spirit of, of humility that should guide us as we engage, uh, others who are caught in sin, accountability, uh, comes through a spirit of humility. And so it's not that we should not, uh, it's not that we should ignore the sin of another, but in being confronted with the sin of another, we should take serious stock of our own lives. Yeah. That exact tension is played out in this passage. Jesus, remember, he'd said, let the one of you who's without sin be the first to throw a stone. He stooped down. He's writing on the ground. And it says in verse 9, at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first. Yep, I got plenty of sins. And you're dropping their stone and turning and walking away. It says, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus now stood up again, straightened up, and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, sir. Jesus then declares, Then neither do I condemn you. So here we have a person who was caught right in the act of sin, and Jesus said, I don't condemn you. And if the story stopped there, it would have sort of one conclusion. But there is a tagline, a word that Jesus has for the woman after he said, I don't condemn you for your act. He said, go now 
and leave your life of sin. You're not condemned. You are forgiven. Stop doing it. There's a tension that's built into this that we have a hard time living into. It's it's almost as if sometimes the I, I think we either want to give everyone a pass, sort of let people live their own lives and ignore sin that's around us, or completely get a bullhorn and, and judge people as as they are living their lives and, and making mistakes and, and sinning in their lives. But Jesus enters that tension of, I don't condemn you, but go stop sinning. Why is that so hard for us to enter into that tension? I, I don't know. It shouldn't be. I mean, if we've encountered the, the grace of God, if we've encountered the forgiveness of God, um, the immensity of God's love should compel us uh, toward a longing to see our lives aligned with the heart of Jesus Christ, to know that that His love is perfect in truth, and if we want to uh, to reflect that love, then we're going to long for our hearts to be aligned with Christ. And so there, there really shouldn't. I mean, there shouldn't be a tension. Um, when confronted with our sin, I mean, the, the thing that we should want more than anything is, is for our hearts to be refined, for our hearts to be renewed. I mean, the, the deepest longing, desire of the Christian life is for our hearts to increasingly reflect the heart of Christ. The, the deepest prayer of the Christian life is to be renewed into the likeness of Jesus Christ because we want more of his love. We want more of Jesus to be reflected in our lives. And so I don't, I don't understand uh, the tension. I don't understand um, the, uh, the, the re- almost the reluctance to say, go and, and sin no more, recognizing that, yes, we're going to wrestle with sin till the day uh, we die, um, not, not diminishing that at all. But the idea that if I, if I, to to affirm somebody in their sin and not call them toward repentance, not call them toward a life more aligned with Christ, I'm ultimately not loving them. I'm just lying to them and saying, go ahead, keep doing whatever the heck you want to do. God's going to love you anyway, which cuts against the whole of Scripture. You know, the Apostle Paul multiple times in, in Romans says, shall we go on sinning that grace might increase? And he says, by no means. And so while there is absolute truth in the reality that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, uh, for those who are in Christ Jesus, again, we've experienced the fullness of God's embrace for all of eternity. Um, We've experienced forgiveness of sin. We have peace, eternal peace with God. But that relationship should lead us for a hunger and a thirst after righteousness, as Jesus has told us. We're called to a a life of pursuing all who God sees us as, wants us to be, and that, that includes a life of holiness and righteousness. And even, he says, be perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. And I've heard some say it's it's like an impossible goal that's out in front of us, so why try? But 
and so the, I've heard the metaphor used, it's like a carrot that is dangling out in front that we will never reach. To, to me, it's more like an oak tree that grows incrementally year after year, or may, maybe even a better metaphor is a fruit tree that grows incrementally and puts out more fruit and more fruit and more fruit. And there's, there's a demand for this growth or this movement toward God in some way that we are called to, and that includes the, the sin that's in our life, the besetting sin, the, the active sin, the experienced sin, the, that we're, we're called to leave that life in a new way. There's a, there's a lot here in, in chapter 8 to dive into. Yeah, and, and why would I want something in my life? Why would I want to live into um, a sinful behavior, sinful thought, whatever it might be, knowing that that grieves the very heart of God. But, you know, the people say Jesus accepts you just the way you are. Yeah, and he, and he gives us the Spirit to transform us. Yeah, he doesn't right? want to leave you. He doesn't want to leave you there. Yeah. That's right. It's a tough thing. Let's go down into verse 31. There's a whole bunch more in between that you can listen to and read. But verse 31 it's, it's a big dispute, all of chapter 8, over the identity of Jesus and who he is. But verse 31, John 8, To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. We could chew on that one for a while. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. It goes on, verse 32, Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Set you free from this sin. They didn't quite get it. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants, we're Jews, and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. We know the Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So when Jesus said, everyone who sins is a slave to sin, he means all of us. And in verse 35, now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I take this as meaning we are set free from a life of sin. We are set free from being slaves to sin. We're set free from the bondage of sin in our lives, and we are called to sacrifice that to Christ and let the Spirit of God transform us into new beings, this freedom that's in Christ. How do we attain that? Persistently leaning into our relationship with Christ, uh, recognizing who who we are. You know, the imagery that that is used multiple times throughout Scripture is the idea that that through Christ, through faith in Christ, we've been uh, transformed for, or, or transferred from the uh, the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And so now, as residents in the kingdom of light. Residents of God's kingdom, by abiding in the kingdom, by doing kingdom things, 
the spirit moves to change and to transform our hearts, to refine us more fully into the image uh, of Christ. And I, and I know that I, I use this example uh, quite often, but it's the best one I have is that, you know, when I, when I first moved to Indiana from Louisiana, I got a driver, you know, I had a, a place of residence, moved into an apartment as I was preparing to, to marry Sherry. And so I, I'm living in an apartment. I've got a license that says I am now an Indiana resident, but nothing about me said Indiana. And yet I was a resident of Indiana, but I didn't sound like a Hoosier. The things that I was passionate about were not uh, Hoosier related. Um, I knew nothing of your deep abiding love for sweet corn and triple sweet corn. And there's a whole variety of sweet corn. Um, didn't know how to get around town. And so was ultimately a, a foreigner seemingly living in a foreign you land. You still haven't really maneuvered the crock pot, have you? <laughs> you guys cook way too much stuff in crock pots. That, that should be, uh, yeah, that, that should be limited to a, a few food items. Um, but you, you guys cook everything from corned beef to ribs. I've never seen ribs cooked in a crock pot. So you're, just, you're not all the way Hoosier yet, are you? Not, not quite yet. But that being said, I mean, fundamentally, having lived here now for 20 years, there's so much about me that has changed as I have abided in Indiana. And so every, I mean, sincerely, you know, 20 years ago, I sounded differently than I do now. While there are still obviously vestiges of my, my South Louisiana accent, I sound a whole lot more like a Hoosier today than I did 20 years ago. And can I get around town? I can get around all the, the places uh, in central Indiana. I can maneuver around downtown Indianapolis really easily, really well. And I love triple sweet corn. And I know more than I could have ever hoped to know about IU and Purdue basketball and football they sort well. There's not much there to know about football, relative, to, especially IU, all you IU fans. Uh, but that being said, there's so much that now I I know about the state where I functionally uh, live as a Hoosier, and and now even when I go out of town and somebody's like, you know, where are you from? Twenty years ago, I would have said, well, I'm from New Orleans, but I live in Indiana, and now. You know, I have a, a, a greater piece of just saying, uh, you know, I live on the uh, north uh, east side of Indianapolis in a town called Fishers. So this new identity that Christ gives to us by setting us free, are you saying that it's time spent, that, that we, we press into a relationship with, with him, that we are in relationship with the community of believers, or that we are spending time in Scripture and and in prayer and and bit by bit by bit all of these different activities and relationships change us and make us citizens not of Indiana but citizens of heaven. Is that I mean? That, I'm yeah. Track, the, 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 the the more we abide in Christ, the more we abide in His uh, in His kingdom ways, the more our hearts will be changed and transformed. And we have to come at it from a disposition of. Uh, transformation, not informational download, because that is, I mean, that's one of the things that we struggle with within especially the Western church is we have this sense that more information, more education 
will change us. And so it's real easy to come at scripture almost with an academic mindset. The more I know about God, then the more I'll, I'll live as God wants me to, um, which denies functionally the relational aspect of it, that, that scripture should lead us into this life of prayer. Scripture should lead us to to pray for the spirit to change and to transform us and to align us with the, the things that scripture is revealing uh, to us. And so, yeah. And, and, you know, again, like being present in the community of believers and not just not just treating it as, you know, we're here for some time of community and fellowship, but seeing the church as a sanctifying community. So I come to worship to offer praise to God. I offer, I I come into worship uh, with a disposition, with a humility, wanting my life changed and transformed. I, I come into my small group or my Sunday school class, whatever it might be. And as we talk about, uh, as we talk over the word, there should be some vulnerability there to say this. Hey, as I'm re- as I read the word this week, as I read the passage we're studying this week, I'm confronted with some sin in my life. You know, pray for me as I pray for myself to be changed and transformed. Pray for the Spirit to move in my heart to change me and to transform me. Um, I'm expect I'm expecting uh, those in my small group or my Sunday school class or some brothers in Christ to hold me accountable. Um, in the presence of of sin that's been revealed in my life, and so I think even one of the things that that's really needed, especially within the Western Church, is is again to see the community of faith as a sanctifying community. So it's not I just come into church, I hear you know I spend an hour in worship, I go to Sunday school class, I talk about the weather, I talk about sports, we talk over the word rather than really uh, applying the word into our lives and allowing the word to ply into our lives um, where we're actively wanting and longing for our hearts to be aligned with Christ. Yeah, there's like the one line here in verse 31 when Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, mm-hmm. you are really my disciples. It's one thing to learn and know and memorize that verse. It's another thing to live it and to explore what are the teachings of Christ? What am I holding on to them? Am I withholding myself from them? What does it mean for me to know the truth, that truth has set me free? Is it intellectual knowledge of the truth? Is it a full immersion into the truth of Christ? So you have some tremendous thoughts on that because if we're going to find a way to ever increasingly become more like Christ and less like the world, we can only do that by full entry into who Christ is and what he has for us and who he wants us to be. Well, this has been a good discussion today. Next week, we're going to be diving more into John chapter 8 and 9, Jesus, who is the great I am. Folks, if you want to jump in deeper, go to our church's website, fishersumc.org, or our church app, and click on the Life of Jesus link. This will take you to more elements in this year-long study, which is really, as we're here learning today, an immersion into the life of Jesus. Until then, may God bless. Mm